At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our Christmas message series, Eyewitness, finding your Christmas story in theirs, where you're invited to find your story in the extraordinary experiences of the men and women who witnessed the very first Christmas. Together, we'll see that no matter who we are, the coming of the Christ was for us. All right, today, um, as we draw our attention to the Word of God, um, this is the first Sunday in December, and maybe you find yourself coming to this place this morning as the race towards Christmas has already started, right? Maybe you're, you know your calendar's not getting any more clear, and instead you're at the point now where you're having to say no to things because life is just moving at this rapid pace, and uh, Christmas is coming whether we like it or not, and as we hustle and bustle around, I want us to be mindful this morning and be reminded that Christmas is not about the cookies. Christmas is not about the cakes. Christmas is not about the parties. Christmas is not, it's even not about the family gatherings. Christmas is about Jesus. That's all it's about. Even if, if our world has taken it and commercialized it and done all of this to try to make it about a bunch of other things, we know in the church this is the time of year where we are reminded of the greatest gift that was ever given, the gift of Jesus, the, the gift that the world has been yearning for and longing for for thousands of years. And I want us to be mindful of that because it is possible for us to go through the hustle and bustle of this Christmas season and completely do all these things apart from Christ. And we miss out. And so I want us, over the next few weeks as we walk together, we're going to slow down. We're going to slow down and we're going to spend time looking at God's word. And we're going to be trying to, to go back to uh, that time in Israel. I want, to, I want to remind you of the, the situation that's going on as, as, as Jesus comes on the scene. Right? Maybe in your Bible, um, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? a lot of times there is a blank page. I want to remind you that that blank page is there on purpose. Because it's there to remind us that the God of the Old Testament that was constantly speaking, constantly prophesying, constantly sending leaders to his people... At the end of the Old Testament, God is silent for 400 years. That's longer than America has been a country. Okay, God was silent for 400 years. So no new prophets, no new revelation. And in that time, what's been taking place is the world is becoming a, a confusing world. You see, God had given his people... Uh, teachers of the law and interpreters of the law and what had happened during this time instead of talking about the peace and all that which comes from God the religious leaders continued to add more and more practices and traditions on top of God's people and so be making this relationship with God more of a religion and so the people were oppressed by religious practices but not only were they oppressed by religious practices they were being oppressed by the political rule of Rome. And through that, they were enduring high taxes. There was cultural division. People literally were being torn apart. And in their heart, they were yearning for this promised Messiah, 
For God throughout the Old Testament had told them that one would come and to save the world from their sins. One would come and sit on the throne of David and would rule with justice and would rule with love and would rule with mercy. And they yearned for that. They deeply waited. And yet God was silent. It's as though God wasn't there anymore. And I have to imagine that the average person going through the difficulties of life was like, God, are you really still here? Do you know our pain? Do you see our difficulties? Do you even care? I have to imagine that that's what many of them felt like. And maybe you're here today and you feel a similar way, like as though God has forgotten you. He hasn't. And the church throughout history to try and kind of connect our hearts to the hearts of those that yearn for Jesus is coming. Through the Christmas season, we celebrate um, a preparation for the celebration of Christmas through the Advent wreath. And we have an Advent wreath right over here. And each week, what the church has done for centuries is, has taken each week and focused in on one of the promises of God and how it was fulfilled in God by the lighting of a candle and reading of Scripture And so the first Sunday of Advent, which was last week, we lit the hope candle, which reminds us of the hope that Isaiah prophesied about. Isaiah says this in chapter 9, he says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from this time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's a candle of hope, reminding of of the people that waited for Jesus' coming, that they were waiting for this one that would do this such thing. And we hope, too, because we know that he has come. The second candle is the candle of preparation. Isaiah chapter 40 prophesies this. He says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the desert highway for our God Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together. For the Lord has spoken. Oh, preparing the way for the Lord. For when he comes, he will make all the difficulties cease. They waited. And he came. And now we rejoice in his coming and wait for his second advent. Next week, we'll light the candle of joy. And then the week after that, we'll light the candle of love. And then on Christmas Eve, we light the Christ candle. So in this Christmas season, we rejoice in his coming. But we also, our hearts are joined with those that yearned for his first coming as we yearn and eagerly wait for his second coming. Because we are reminded that Jesus' first coming changed everything. And this year, as we walk through this Christmas series, we've entitled it Eyewitnesses. And what we hope to do each week is to go through the account of Jesus' birth from, and we want to see it from the perspective of those that were there. 
those that experienced it firsthand. We want to hear their story. And as we go through this sermon series, we're going to take a look at a different character every week, someone that was there. And we're going to come to, I'll be honest, we're going to come to some very familiar passages. If you've been a part of the church for a while, this is not going to be anything new for you. But there's a danger with that because sometimes this, when we hear the accounts, we're like, oh yeah, I remember that. Yep, yep, I got it, I got it, I got it. And we don't allow the freshness of it to impact us like what it used to. So my prayer is, as we come to these familiar biblical accounts, that instead of just saying, hey, I got it, been there, done that, that we allow the message to hit us in a fresh way. That we try to put ourselves in the person's perspective and try to see where they're coming from and how Jesus, Jesus is coming, fulfilled all of their deepest desires. So today, as we're going to take a look at Mary's account, beginning in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, what I want us to see as we look at this passage today is the truth that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. This is the story of Christmas. Is that which seems impossible to the world is not impossible for God. When it seems there is no way, God can make a way. Nothing is impossible with him. Today we're going to see two truths as we walk through this Christmas story from the perspective of Mary. The first truth that we're going to see today is that when God calls God provides. Let's look in verse 26 as we pick up this account. Luke writes, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. And tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and, he shall, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? What we see here is that when God calls, God provides. And I want us to not miss the magnitude of what's taking place in these few short verses. I want to remind you that God had been silent, right? For 400 years, he had not spoken. And now in this way, he chooses to speak again in a unique and seemingly unorthodox way. Gabriel, the angel, the messenger angel, comes with a message of God to the region of Galilee, to a small, obscure town called Nazareth. Now for us, like Nazareth, we know Nazareth. If you've been around the Bible for a while or been around the church, you know what Nazareth is and, and you know about its significance. But back in that day, Nazareth was nothing. It wasn't significant at all. It wasn't a political center. It wasn't a religious center. It was a city that nobody thought anything good could come from. We even look at Nathaniel when he finds out and, and Jesus is coming to get his disciples later on in, in, the, in John. 
We see that um, when, when Nathan finds out, or Nathaniel finds out that Jesus is of Nazareth, this is what he says in verse 46 of John chapter one. He says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? You see, Nazareth was a land of con- that was contempt with people that were marginalized, had a population of about 500. It was a non-place. It was a shoddy, corrupt little town that was halfway between the port cities of Tyre and Sidon. It was overrun by Gentiles and Roman soldiers. It was not a place that you wanted to be. And I also want to remind you, like to give it a little bit of context, that Nazareth is a place that you can actually go to today. It really is a place that exists. And we know that many times when you think of like the religious hub of the day, you would think of Jerusalem. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, why in the world would God not go to Jerusalem to bring forth this message that was the greatest message I've ever told? Why would he choose Nazareth? I also want to remind you, to give it a little bit of context, that Jerusalem and Nazareth are about 90, 90, 92 miles apart. Like that's some significant dip distance back in the day. You, can't, you couldn't get in a, a camel and get there in like an hour and a half, right? You, it, took, it was a day's journey or multiple days journey to get from Nazareth to Jerusalem. So that's about the distance of, of like from going from our church here up to Frankenmuth. Okay, that's about how far these, these two cities are apart from each other. But it's interesting, and let it not be lost on us, that God chooses this obscure place that nobody cares about to send Gabriel with the greatest message and greatest news of all time. But let us see, not only do we look at that God chooses this obscure place, God also chooses the most unlikely person. Right? He, we see here that she first, before we know it's Mary, we see that this girl is a young virgin girl. And there's something interesting about this young virgin girl. We learn that she's in the middle of her betrothal period, that she has been betrothed to Joseph. Now, we need to understand culturally uh, a little bit about what that was kind of like. Right? Back in the day, they did marriages and engagements a little bit different than they do now. What would happen is the, the groom would ask the bride to meet him at the city gate. And they would go there and meet, and then the, the, the uh, groom would extend to the bride a cup. And this cup would be his offer to to marry her. And the bride had the opportunity, as this offer was extended, she could choose to receive the cup or she could reject the cup. And in this case, we see when Joseph came to Mary and uh, extended the cup to her, she received the cup. And by doing so, at that moment, they were promised to one another, but they had to go and go prepare themselves for the wedding. So what Joseph would do at the time is that Joseph then would go and prepare by providing a a home for he and his new wife. Many times what would happen is they would go to their father's house and they would begin to build another room on top uh, next to their father's house. And so he had to have time to do that. While at the same time, the bride would go away and she would get her bridesmaids together and they would begin to prepare themselves for the wedding. The problem was is that neither the groom nor the bride knew when the wedding would come. The only person that knew when the wedding would take place was the groom's father. And so the groom is waiting and the bride is waiting for the groom's father to go to the groom and say, now it's time to go get your bride. 
And at that time they would go and they'd get the bride and then the wedding would take place. And so it, what's interesting in this time period is that we've got Mary, who is this young virgin. She's in her waiting period. Right? So she's away waiting for a message to come. She's waiting for the message to come this, to say that the groom is ready for you. And so she's waiting for a message. But the message that she's waiting for is not the message that she receives. Can you imagine her shock and awe when she's there waiting for the message to come and this angel shows up with another message? Now, let's also take a look at, at Mary just for a second so that we can kind of put into context. Mary was a nobody, right? Mary was a nobody from nowhere. She's the most unlikely person to actually be chosen by God because we know that she's young. I mean, she's probably like teenage. We know that she's a girl and we know that she's a virgin. And we also know that she comes from a poor peasant family. She more than likely was illiterate. So there was nothing special about her from the worldly standards. But yet God chose her. By his good pleasure, he chose Mary. Can you imagine her shock? Right? She's in that room and somewhere waiting, hoping for the message to come someday at some time. And Gabriel shows up before her and says, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now she's young. God hasn't spoken in 400 years. And now God shows up through Gabriel in her home. She's got to be over. It's like, what is this madness? Like, what kind of message does God have for me? Right? Is he going to, is it the God of the Old Testament that's going to come and smite me because I'm a nobody? What is this? And so we can even see that the angel, Gabriel, could sense her, her fear and perplexedness. And Gabriel replies, don't be afraid, for you have found favor with God. From God's perspective, Mary was the perfect person to carry out his plan of redemption. And Gabriel greets her as though she's one of a recipient of this amazing grace of God. It's not based on who she was or what she had done, but it was based on God's pleasure in her. He bestows upon her this amazing grace. I want us to see a couple things here. First, I want us to understand Mary's disposition because I think we can learn a lot from Mary's disposition in our own lives and how we can make um, worship of Jesus magnificent this Christmas season. Right throughout Scripture, we know and we've seen it in our own experiences that just as the Bible says, God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So what the world seems foolish and weak, God uses to carry out his mighty plan. This is the disposition of someone that God uses. Right? God doesn't need someone that's proud. God doesn't want anyone that's self-sufficient or self-reliant. God wants someone that to the world standards is weak and foolish. Because that's a vessel that God can use. 
For how mighty is it when God steps in and takes the foolish things of the world and the weak things of the world and raises them up and uses them for his glorious purposes. When the world looks at that, they don't see the person, but they see the mighty hand of God and the grace of God that comes down on a specific person. So I want to remind you, you are who you are and the weaknesses that you have are not a detriment to the work of God, but they are the tools that God uses. Your weaknesses are the tools that God can use. God doesn't want your strengths. God wants you fully surrendered to say, God, all that I am, all that I have, it's all yours. And that's the disposition that God uses. So young person that's here today, God can use you. God can use you as a, in your youth in a mighty way. Older person who's lacking a lot of energy that you used to have and a lot of zeal, God can use you. He just wants you to be, make yourself available to him. Crazy mother that's trying to raise cats. God can use you in your weakness, in your frazzledness. Your weaknesses are not weakness to God, but opportunities for him to step in. I wish we could grasp that. Because the world says, hide your weakness, run after your strengths. God says, bring me your weakness and I will make you strong. So her, Mary's disposition is just perfect. What the world sees as someone that should be cast aside, God chooses to use in a mighty way. Because then we see her disposition, but then we see God's call in her life. This is what he says in verse 31. He says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom. There will be no end. Mary in her youth, Mary in her weakness, realizes that God wants her to be the vessel through which he would carry out all of the promises he made in the Old Testament. All of those promises that he made. That God was going to use her to be the vessel through which the, the plans for redemption were going to further be carried out. I want you to understand that though God had a plan for Mary, God has a plan for you. God wants to use your life in a mighty way to bring him glory. And so many times we uh, want to like lift Mary up to a place of like worship. Mary's just a servant. She's just a person that made herself available to God and God did the mighty work. Right? There's nothing special about Mary. Right? She's a person that was used by God. You are a person that God can use as well to carry about his mighty plan. You have a calling on your life. God wants to use you so that others can come to know him and so that he can be glorified. 
Have you ever felt God calling you to do something or move in a different direction that was overwhelming to you? Like, have you ever got to that place? Well, at first, at first, in order to hear that voice, you gotta say, okay, Lord, I'm all in. Whatever you want, wherever you want, I'm in. I'll do it, I'll go where you send me, I'll do what you tell me, I'm all yours. And then when we do, something very, 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 very scary happens. He speaks. And he tells us what he wants us to do. And then we're stuck in this dilemma because we know what God wants us to do. We've already said, I'm all in. But then our lives are full of lots of questions. Right? We want, to, we, we want God to tell us the end and how it all ends and how we get from here to there. Those are all of our questions. And yet he might not give us all that. He might just say, oh, this is all I need you to do. This next thing. This next step. Just be faithful in this next step. And yet we fill our lives with questions. And here's the cool thing is that God doesn't worry about our questions. God's big enough to answer our questions. Because we see Mary comes to Gabriel with a question. She's like, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Gabriel. You're, gonna t- you're, tell- you're telling me that God of the universe is going to use me to be the vessel through which his plan for the king to establish on the throne, that's coming through me? And in her mind, she's like, but there's a problem. How can this be because I am a virgin? Like Mary, even in her her uneducated life or whatever, she knows how babies are made. Like she knows how all that works. And she's like, wait a minute, how can this be? How is this going to happen? And it's as though God wants us to remind us that nothing is impossible with God. From verse 35, we see the angel answers her. And he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then in verse 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren for nothing is impossible with God. So how does God answer her questions through Gabriel? the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Mary is a passive recipient of this divine initiative of God in the same way that God created the world out of nothing. He will create this new unique child within her. Therefore, this child will be born and he will be holy and he will be consecrated to God. To God, he will be the son of God. And you may say to yourself, why is it so important that she is a virgin? She has to be. The bearer of Jesus, the Son of God, has to be a virgin because we know that the sin of nature is passed on down through the Father. The curse of Adam is passed on down from father to son, from father to son, from father to son, from father to son. And so in order for Jesus to come to save man from their sins, he has to be born apart from the curse. He can't be born with sin because if he's born with sin, then he can't be a savior. And so God has to show up in a miraculous way to save you and me. And that's exactly what he does in this way. So to deny the virgin birth is to deny that salvation can actually take place. But not only to answer her questions, Gabriel not only says, will this miraculous thing be done in you? This miraculous thing, a similar miraculous thing, is being done in Elizabeth. For Elizabeth was old. She was well beyond children-rearing age. 
And he says, now, if you don't believe, go be with her and see her that she's now six months pregnant and let that be a reminder and a promise to you that that which is done for her is even greater to be done for you. And this is how the Gabriel responds. For nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. That which seems impossible in your life. Nothing is impossible with God. When God calls, he provides. When God, call, when God places that call on your life to go and do that which he wants you to do, he will provide for that. You don't have to try and control it. You don't have to try and manage it. You just have to be faithful to what God has already done. But isn't this the story of God working in the Bible? This is the story of Jesus, that God continually doing that which, which is impossible. He's already done the impossible, right? We, we want him to do like, like lowercase impossible things when he's already done the capital I impossible thing, which is the impossible thing that he's already done? Save you from your sin. That's the impossible thing. Right? In your life, that's the only impossible thing that you can't do. Right? You can't save yourself. We all know that we've been, we've been born into this life and each one of us have inside of us this nature that is bent towards sin, a rebellion against the God of the universe. We look at our creator and we say, I don't want you to be the boss of me. And so we want to go do our own way and do our own thing. And the Bible calls that rebellion sin and sin has to be punished because God is a holy, just God, and we are rebels against him. And so God can't leave us in that sinless, sinful state that he must come and save us. And this is exactly what Jesus has done. Jesus has done the impossible. Jesus came as a baby who was fully God and fully man, and yet he lived a perfect life. He never rebelled against God the Father lived out all the laws and kept everything along the way, keeping perfect fellowship with God. And then he went to a cross because Jesus was going to be the sacrifice for the sin of the world. The Bible tells us that all the sin of the world was placed on him, your sin and my sin, and Jesus endured the wrath of God. He took our penalty and took our punishment. And then Jesus died. God saw his sacrifice was enough and he raised him from the dead. And now Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive now and he is put to death, death and sin. And if we believe in the work of Jesus, if we personally place faith in Jesus, we too can be forgiven of our sins. That's the impossible work that's already been done. So for nothing to be impossible with God, he's already given the opportunity for us to be saved. But that also means that nothing lowercase is impossible with God. So your marriage that's hurting, your marriage that feels like it's on the brink, nothing's impossible with God. God can heal your marriage. Your wayward kids that are far, far away from the Lord that you worry about every single day and you pray for and you cry for, nothing is impossible with God. Your very life, the fact that God desires to use you as a vessel to advance his kingdom in a mighty way, that somehow your insignificant life fits into the timeline of God's plan of redemption. Nothing is impossible 
with God. If we could just grab hold of that truth for just a second, our lives would be different. Our communities would be different. So when God, when God is in our life and God is active in our lives, and we know that when he calls, he provides. The second thing I want us to see is that when God calls, we respond. Look in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. This is exactly how we are to respond. When God calls, when God places something on our hearts and on our lives, the best thing we can do is respond. I'm sure, I'm sure Mary, even in her response, had a lot of other questions. She's like, wait a minute, this, what you're asking me to do sounds crazy to the world. I'm going to have to go now and tell Joseph, who is supposed to be my husband soon, that I've got a, a child growing inside of me that's not his and that I wasn't unfaithful to him. I wonder how that's going to go. Or, or she's got to go to her parents because, remember, she's still young, living in her father's house. Hey, mom, dad, I got to tell you something. I'm pregnant. That's a hard conversation. Right? And yet... That and then the scandalous of all of thisness that's surrounding all of this. You've got to imagine that's overwhelming for her. But yet at the same time, her response was, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Her response is basically, I don't know what all this means. But I trust you, God. I trust that you are good. And I trust that you have me in your hands as a part of your sovereign plan. You know, this is the response of every follower of God. This is the response he wants to hear from us. I remember Isaiah. Remember Isaiah when, when he hears uh, the voice, who will go, whom shall I send and who will go for me? To which Isaiah replies, here I am, send me. That is not only the most frightening response from a human perspective, but the most godly response to God. When we come before our maker and we say simply, here am I, send me, then we become vessels that God can use. This Christmas, I want you to be reminded that Jesus came to save you from your sin so that you could live on mission for him. That's why he does it. And for us to take this great gospel message and to sit on it and to do nothing with it is a great tragedy. So what is your posture towards the Lord today? Are you willing to receive this Jesus as your Savior and Lord? You can simply respond to him by saying, Lord, I realize I'm a sinful person and I realize that you died on the cross for me. Now I give you control of my life. You do that and you now have all the promises of being a child of God. But for many of us, you know, the call to the gospel was the call to come and die. But somewhere along the way, we've stopped dying. Somewhere along the way, we've said, God, I want to follow you if it's easy. God, I want to follow you with all of these provisions. And I want to remind you that when we follow God, we follow him without that. We say simply, Lord, here am I, send 
me. Today, as we enter into the Christmas season and as part of our tradition here, we celebrate on the first Sunday of the month uh, the Lord's Supper. And so if you're here this this morning and you are a believer and you want to celebrate with us, uh, this is the time to get your elements. If you didn't grab them on the way in, go ahead and run out to the lobby and pick yours up. Uh, We'll wait for you. Um, But we're prone to forget, right? We're prone to wander. We're prone to get through the busy activities. And sometimes we forget that our salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. It's not found in our work. It's not found in how good of a person we are, but it's found squarely in in Jesus Christ. But also, it's good to be reminded that our salvation came at a cost. That though Jesus at Christmas came as a baby in a manger, he came with the sole purpose of going to the cross. And it's at the cross that our salvation is, is paid for, and it's through his death and his resurrection that our salvation is secured but that we need to be reminded that there was a cost. We need to be reminded that we are sinful people. So I thought before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, I thought it'd be appropriate if we spend a few moments praying and asking God to bless our time. Father, we thank you today for not being silent. And Father, I'm aware that there may be some here today that feel as though you have you're nowhere near there are some that even question whether or not today you know their pain and you know their need and as we see from the bible today that you are ever present you know and you're working everything out in your time for your glory father thank you for mary's example today May we follow in that example of faithfulness of where we just say, Lord, here am I, send me. And then when you show us what you want us to do, give us the faith to obey. But today, Father, we are also reminded of the cross. We're reminded that our sin has a price and that it must be paid. And we thank you that Jesus paid it all. So in this moment, Father, as we take this bread and we take this cup, let us be reminded that you died for us and that we owe our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself today.